morning, and uh, there will be some explanation about that just in a in a few moments, uh, and by that I mean many moments from now. Um, we'll not jump the gun, uh, but we're as our, we lead up to that. It's always important to um, to think about it in context and what it means for us. Uh, the, the magnitude of what we do, even in something so simple. What has brought us to this point? What has brought us to this point of a small table with some nap, napkins and bread and wine and us sitting here in relative comfort and quietness? And by that I mean we need to appreciate where the church came from and the change, the seismic change that happened uh, when Jesus came. The Jews had been worshipping for a certain way for 1,500 years up until the time Jesus came. And I outlined something of that uh, uh, here. That would take us back to roughly the 600s A.D. That's a long time ago. 1,500 years ago. So that's a long time to be doing anything, isn't it? And uh, the, even though these things went on for a very long time, they were temporary. They were always meant to be temporary. That in the very heart of these things, God sowed the seeds of destruction. He sowed the seeds where everything was to fall away, leaving something singular, something glorious. Just like we will, farmers will go out and kill the tops of the potatoes and leave yet underneath something uh, more significant. And even though in, in, uh, through May and June the, the potato plants will blossom and the, they, they really add to the landscape of Prince Edward Island, Yet, it's temporary. These things are temporary. And we know that, don't we? The potato blossoms or the lupins. And, and as beautiful as these things are, they're temporary. We wish they would last longer, but alas, they don't. And yet, this is what we find over 1,500 years of, uh, of Jewish history. The, sacrifice, the sacrifices were done generation after generation. The temple had been built. One of the great wonders of the ancient world, Solomon's temple. And uh, it was a magnificent edifice. It was eventually destroyed and replaced by Herod's temple, which uh, stood by by the time Jesus came. And and yet that temple itself would be destroyed. And we're going to see that in Matthew 24. In, uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, but it had become so much a part of the people's way of thinking that you couldn't be a Jew without the temple. Cultures are like that, aren't they? The Scots can't be Scottish without the thistle or the, the, the haggis or the, the Dutch can't be Dutch without the wooden shoes or the windmills. or, uh, or we, we integrate uh, and that becomes more more uh, uh, significant when religion is involved. Not just a thistle on a steeple or a pair of wooden shoes, but when 
your religion then becomes integrated to uh, your culture or your, your identity. And the Jews, for them, that was very much the case. That to be a Jew was to be at the temple. And not to be at the temple was to be uh, uh, abandoning your father, your mother, your culture, everything. And uh, so when Jesus came, and when that started not to be the case, many of these people were persecuted by their fellow Jews. So much so that they they started to second guess, are we doing the right thing? I mean, this was so much a part of our culture. It's a part of who we are. And to now leave that and to identify with something completely, seemingly different and alien to what we have known doesn't seem right. And so many were thinking of just throwing in the towel and saying, okay, we're going back. We're going back to the old ways. We're going back to the, 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 the temple, to the community, to the, to, and all that's integrated in that, the family, society, everything that revolves around that. It's a very difficult thing for people all over the world to leave a, a, a religion because as very much so it's integrated into their very culture. And it becomes a, not just a religious matter, but a, a family matter, a societal matter. But this is what these people were called upon to do. And so, as many people were drifting away, and they were in danger of leaving the Christian faith altogether and going back to the old ways, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, it could have been the Apostle Paul, some think maybe Apollos, so there's various views on who wrote uh, Hebrews, but he puts pen to paper, and he comes out swinging. He comes out alternating with pleas and warnings. That's what you have in the epistle to the Hebrews. You have this alternating back and forth as you read through it in terms of uh, 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 pleading with people, pleading with them to look to Jesus and recognize what God has done in them. Uh, and for them. But then also integrated in that the warnings of what it will mean to them to reject that and to put society or family or safety ahead of those, ahead of what is most important. And that again, friends, is what many, we're, we're not subject so much to that here. You can become a Christian very easily in many ways, in, in the Western culture. But in many parts of the world, it's life and death. And for the, many of these people, it was life and death. To identify yourself with Jesus Christ exclusively. To turn your back, as it were, on the temple. And the sacrifices. And the Jewish tradition. And all of these things. So he had to lay out a case. And man, does he lay out a good case. It's amazing to read through Hebrews. I remember R.C. Sproul talking about if you were uh, 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 stranded on a desert island and he only had one book of the Bible uh, he, could, uh, he could have, he said he would take, you would think Romans uh, 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 being Sproul, but he said, I would take the epistle to the Hebrews. And for, for me as well, it is so marvelous because 
the writer is able to take 1,500 years of Jewish religion and show how it is fulfilled in Jesus. It's not against. It's not God saying, I'm against all these things. No, he's saying, I'm, I'm fulfilling all of these things. So that to go back is to go back into infancy. is to go back to the building blocks. And it's to go back to the crayons and all of these things. That's what the sacrifices were. It was like a kindergarten for children. God is saying, this is what it's going to be like. And so you teach children through pictures. And the sacrifices were like that. But when they reached maturity, when the, when the people of God came to maturity, all of that was swept away. And God showed decisively in 70 A.D. how, dis, how He was finished with that as the temple was destroyed ultimately. And so part of the way in which God convinces you and I is the same way in which He convinced the people in the first century by saying, look at how these things are so perfectly fulfilled. That even the, the, the law itself was saying, I'm temporary. Don't look to me. Don't hang your hat on me. Don't hold on to me because I'm just going to throw you off. Don't get too comfortable with me because there's somebody coming. Not something not a goat, not a lamb, not a grain offering, not any of these things, but someone is coming. And the Psalms tell us of that. We saw it in Psalm 40. Behold, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do your will, O my God. There is David writing, and he's writing about a king who would come, a sacrifice who would come and die doing away with all of these other things. Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Wait a minute! Isn't the Levites, where the, the tribe where the priests come from, isn't God interested in the Levitical priesthood with all the goats and lambs and all, the, all that kind of thing? Why is he talking now about some priesthood of Melchizedek that would come? And it's amazing. It just appears and then disappears. Because Melchizedek was a king in the Old Testament who, by the, the fact that we don't see where he came from or where he went, he gives an impression of an eternal life. He gives an impression of somebody who will live forever. And God is saying, I'm, I'm giving you a priest like him. Not a priest like the Levitical priests who, who were born and died and born and died and you had to keep replacing them and replacing them and who had to be atoned for their own sin before they were any good. But I'm going to give you a priest that lives forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he will ever live to make intercession for you. He will not tire nor grow weary of hearing your confessions of sin. He ever is ever faithful. He is ever merciful. He does not tire. And that's what he is saying here. 
Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith. With, in full assurance of faith. And this section that we're looking at has three particular words that I want to draw your attention to. And they're familiar words. And they're words that we find in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And that one draws the other out like tissues from a box. You know, you pull a tissue out and out comes the other. If I pull this, then that will come out. If I keep pulling, out will come all these tissues. And I'm just throwing them all over the place. So you pull one out and the other comes out. If I say, I have faith in Jesus, the Son of God who shed His blood, then I have hope. And if I have hope, then I have love for those around me and love for God. That is the product of faith and hope. And so this is what he is driving at with the Hebrews who are tempted to go back, tempted to embrace something that does not save. And Whether it's the people in the first century or people in 2021, we are always tempted to embrace something or someone that does not save. Put not your trust in princes, the Bible says. Not to put our trust in money or family. I'm not saying don't trust your parents. I'm saying don't, uh, as a basis for salvation, these things will not save. So he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Three times he uses these, this phrase, let us, let us, let us. He's driving it home. He's got, a, he's got a message to get through. So he's giving these imperatives. Let us, let us, let us. Let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. 24, let us consider. He's no wilting violet, is he? He wants, he wants to excite their minds to action. He wants them to shake off the tiredness and the fear and the, and, and the anxiety. He wants to help them to focus their mind on Jesus Christ. And the first is faith. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what does that mean? Well, we've Talked about it before, but it bears repeating. If you can imagine this sanctuary, a the temple in, in Jerusalem, it had various rooms. So let's section off this part as the holy place. Let's put a curtain from that pillar over to that pillar, and all of that in behind is the most holy place. So you had two, two places. In the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's what it was. It's a box with the long poles, and inside were the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, and Aaron's rod. 
They were inside the most holy place. A a priest went in there once a year with blood. And as he went in, he confessed the sins of Israel, sprinkling the blood on the top of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. What a beautiful picture. It was a seat of mercy. It wasn't a seat of judgment. It was a seat of mercy. So that when God looked down, He didn't see the broken law. He saw the mercy that came through the blood. But it was the only person who had access to that was the, 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 the high priest once a year. And this is where the seismic shift comes in. Where now, because of the death of Jesus, all believers have access into the very presence of God. We come to our Father in the name of Jesus and we say, Our Father who art in heaven. We cry out, Abba, Father, from a spirit of sonship, with intimacy. And we know this Father in a very intimate way. Much like you'll see in these huge corporations, maybe Microsoft or uh, 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 General Motors or whoever, you know, they have the CEO there and the, 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 the son or the daughter of the CEO will come in and jump on their father's lap and play, start rearranging things on the desk and play with the laptop and do all sorts of things. Why? Because they are the child of the person. They have a confidence that no one else has. No one else would dare march into the headquarters of Microsoft or into the headquarters of IBM or uh, General Motors and just start doing whatever. Opening and closing the curtains. Oh, isn't this fun? Pressing the buttons on the chairs. Well, what's that kid doing? Why are they doing that? Oh, they're the the son of the, the CEO. And he loves to see him because he's surrounded by all these suits and ties and He's reminded that he loves this little child. And this child loves him and has a a confidence. The little child is not intimidated by all the, the insignia all around. But knows the Father. And so, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus through a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. That is, through His Flesh. Remember I said there's a curtain from there over to there. Nobody can go by. But when Jesus died on the cross, it tells us in Matthew's Gospel that that curtain, which was many, many feet high, thick, was torn from top to bottom so that now access could be gained by all. But the veil is not a curtain. It's the flesh of Jesus. Jesus' body is like a veil. So that when it is torn and the blood comes out as the basis of a, on the basis of a sacrifice for us, that takes away the separation between us and God. Why? Because our sins separate us from God. We are unholy. But because of the cleansing blood of Jesus, because of His death on the cross, that veil is now torn open. 
So now, through the blood, by the Son, by Him, I now come into the holy place. I come into the very throne room of the Father. And I talk to Him. And I lay my burdens upon Him. And I tell Him what's on my mind and what's on my heart. And I tell Him all my fears. And I, I pray that He would lift my burdens and forgive my sins. That's why the Bible tells us, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. What a wonderful thing. And that we have a Father who delights in showing mercy. He delights in it. Because that's why Jesus died. To save sinners. And if you say this morning, yes, I am a sinner. And He's looking for you. He's the one. He's, he's not looking for the people who are well. He's not looking for the righteous. He's not looking for the people who are confident in themselves. No, He's looking for sinners. I've come to seek and to save those who are lost and to bring them in. We've been seeing that in that great feast back in chapter 21 of Matthew. Go into the highways and the byways and get the bad and the good, whoever's out there, who I don't care, and bring them in because my table is ready and full. It is in these things, friends, that we exercise the assurance of faith. Not in ourselves. Do you see anything in there about what you have done? Do you find any confidence in yourself there? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's what the whole epistle's about. It's a looking away from ourselves. Chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. That's the key. When you look away from yourself in faith. See, faith is a looking away from yourself. It's a giving up on your own efforts to get into heaven. It's saying, I can't do it. Because this God demands perfection. He demands 100% holiness and I can't give it. But the good news is there was someone who did. He was punished for what we did. He died. God showed that He accepted that sacrifice by raising Him from the dead. And now He calls me to faith in Him. The assurance of faith. That's, that's our passport, as it were. We hear a lot about passports, and we're going to be hearing a lot about it. Can't get into PEI without a PEI pass. Can't get into Brunswick. Can't go to Pizza Delight. A pizza shack. A pizza joint. This week, you won't be able to... No. No pass, you can't get in. These are restaurants, friends. And yet, how can we think that we can go into the presence of a holy God without the blood of His Son? That is the passport that He says you must have. We accept these things in large measure in our society. We say, okay, we've, we're, under, we're in a pandemic. There's a certain amount of restrictions that we need to 
uh, seek to live by, and so on. We put our rubber stamp on it. We say we can agree with that. But then when it comes to God, we say, well, uh, surely I can just waltz into the presence of such a God, can't I? God says, no, you need a pass. And the pass is the blood of my Son, which I'm giving to you freely. It's free of charge. A lot of these passes are free, aren't they? You go online, da, 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 you do it, you get it, and it's mail, emailed to you. You don't have to pay for it. But what a greater pass we have. As Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I love those words, gave. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a free pass, but it's a pass we need. Nothing more is required, but nothing else will do. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That, that again speaks of there's no faith, there's no assurance without that blood. Do you see the way he ties it? Do you see the way you can't get away from faith without blood? You can't get away from assurance without Jesus. You can't separate the two. You can't have a relationship or confidence with this God unless the two are married together. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Faith in His blood. He's pushing us into a corner. He's leaving us at a place where we can go no other place. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast our confession, the confession of our hope, without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. This is what arises out of what Jesus has done. This, this is what Paul says, doesn't he, when he's working through the death of Jesus in Romans 8. He says there, if God be for us, who can be against us? He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also along with Him freely give us all things? He's working through the death of, of, of Christ and what it means for us. And He goes on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's starting with the cross. He's starting with the blood. And then his hope is generating from that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? This is what Hebrews is saying here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waver. Shouldn't we waver at some things when life gets really hard? I think Paul answers that for us. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul says, I, I take away any excuse that you might have for giving up on your hope. Because every day, we apostles are like sheep to be slaughtered. But, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
For I am sure. There is that, that confident hope. I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. That gets at is not just what God does, but what God is. He is faithful. It belongs to His very essence. Just as you have arms and a heart and lungs and blood and bones, it belongs to your essence. So it belongs to the essence of God to be faithful. And to fail to do any of these things is to fail to be God Himself. He who promised is faithful. Can we not see it? Just in the very Psalms we sang this morning, Psalm 40, Behold, I come, it is written of me in the book, a thousand years before Jesus comes. Or going back to the very Garden of Eden when it talks about that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but not before the serpent will put a nail through the feet of the seed of the woman. And God says, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. And He gives shadows and types of events and people and sacrifices and prophecies to say He's coming, He's coming. For thousands of years He says He's coming. And then, and then there's this madman on the banks of the Jordan says, repent for the kingdom of God is almost here. There is one standing among you. I am not worthy to unloose his sandals. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He who promised is faithful, friends. He will surely do it. That is the hope that we have. In the hope of eternal life, which Paul says in Titus, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Can the He who is the truth lie? Can He who is faithful give up on His people? He who is called Savior not be that Savior when you come to Him broken? Staring down a lifetime of regret and sin and misery? You think about your own feeble heart when you can't You can't love God the way you're overcome with a sense of your own unworthiness. And yet you come to this God who is faithful. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then lastly, love. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Surely, as we've been seeing, this is what flows out of the work of salvation, right? Didn't we see that when we talked about what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the end of salvation. That we might love God. 
that we might spend an eternity loving Him. And what He is saying here is, you will know that you're a changed person by your love for one another. Let us then consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We stir one another up by not just telling somebody, you should be more loving. (laughs) But by being more loving ourselves. By being an example to others. By setting an example. Nothing will provoke the heart and mind of apathetic people than a godly example. An example of love lived out right before you. Many children have testified to that in seeing that in their parents or seeing that in somebody in their church. I read about it, you can say in the Word, but I saw it lived out in my home. I saw it lived out in my church. I saw it lived out with people who sacrificed for their faith, sacrificed for their Lord. That's how you stir one another up to love and good works, by doing it, by being an example. And so Paul says, let us consider not neglecting the meeting of ourselves, neglecting meeting together. So that's a big part of it. And that's why there was such a big push for us to get back out of Zoom into the body of the congregation, ASAP. To live life in community with one another, meeting together, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as some have done, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day? The day is the day of judgment, of course. That's why he goes on to give that warning. Verse 28, Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? See? He's he's encouraging them, but there's also a warning. He says, let me tell you what is left for those who trample the blood of the Son of God underfoot, who say to God, you're not dependable. Wouldn't that be awful for our children to say to us, you're not dependable. I have found after all these years, you're not dependable. Or your boss coming to you and say, you're not dependable. You'd be cut to the heart, wouldn't you? Or your husband or wife saying, you're not dependable. Like somebody reaching into your chest cavity and pulling out your heart. But we say that to God all the time. When the Gospel is preached to us, and for many, we've, we've heard the Word. We've heard the Gospel for many years in this church. And what have we done with it? What have we said back to God? Have we said, you are faithful and true. You are dependable. Or have we said, this is not dependable enough for me to give my life over to. I'm just going to keep you at arm's length, Lord. I'm just going to you know, stand at the door and be ready to make a quick entrance rather than commit my heart to this, which will take me who knows where. I've got too much to live for. And I don't feel that this and you are ultimately dependable. What does God think of that? He says in verse 29, and has outraged 
the spirit of grace. Those are terrifying words. Not just to outrage the I plead with you. Be reconciled. I give you my son. I, his blood was shed for sinners like you. Will you not come? I stretch my hand out. And to reject that at how you have heard and have ultimately rejected these things. And the writer goes on to set up what the final end. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Language. Why is it that he's, he's speaking of the, the vengeance of God? It's because God gave His all. He gave His own Son. in all of humanity. It is to outrage the Holy Spirit. Not just the Father, but the Spirit who is pictured for us. And so, what is our, what is our calling then here this morning? Let us, let us, let us. Let us draw near. love, and good works. Friends, let us draw near to God. He has showered upon us Is this not a God worth giving our hearts and lives to 100% without reservation to say, yes, you are faithful. You through his, the veil of His flesh, through the shed blood that He has so richly given. Draw me by Your Spirit. Give me... Vengeance of God. The, the, the terror of God. But with the joy of His appearing. Let's pray.